The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. President Trump returns to the campaign trail and Judge Amy Coney Barrett returns to the Senate Judiciary Committee. We've got every angle covered. Plus, we will take a Bloomberg television simulcast straight at in just a couple of minutes regarding what's next for Disney. So we've got a lot to get through. I'm joined by our stellar sound on team, Timmy Pipihero on the board, Matthew Shirley in the background of just orchestrating life, and Christine Barada managing all of us, the executive producer. So grateful every single day to work with such talented, talented team members on the Bloomberg Sound on simulcast, especially in these tough and trying work from home era that is life. All right, let's start. Enough of the team. Let's talk about the news. Judge Amy Coney Barrett, that's the big story today, folks. She returned to the Senate Judiciary Committee and she had day one, day one of uh, the confirmation hearing. Tomorrow, though, tomorrow is when we will get to the question and answer period of the uh, of the uh Back and forth. All right. We actually have a little bit from Judge Amy Coney Barrett in which she said what her role will be about how what the role and the courts having a vital responsibility to the rule of law. Uh, and, and I thought it was an interesting moment. And that's where I want to begin today. Here's Judge Amy Coney Barrett in her opening statements with regards to the role that the court should play in the lives of Americans. Here she is. Courts have a vital responsibility to the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches, elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. That was Judge Amy Coney Barrett in her opening remarks testifying earlier today before the Senate Judiciary Committee. My colleague Anna Edgerton joins me on the telephone line. She is Bloomberg Politics Editor. Anna, thrilled to have you on, especially about a topic as important as this. So what did we learn today from day one of the confirmation hearing from Judge Amy Coney Barrett before the Senate Judiciary Committee? Hey, Kevin. Good to be here. Yeah, it was largely what we expected. We had um, kind of a forecast, a preview of what Democrats and Republicans were going to say. Democrats very much focused on the Obamacare case that will be before the court the week after the election, just trying to show how much is at stake and how important it is to make sure that you have a Supreme Court that's going to not overturn the Affordable Care Act. Um, They pointed to Chief Justice John Roberts' previous decision to uphold the Affordable Care Act and a a law review article written by Amy Coney Barrett questioning that decision to show that if she were to be seated before the election, the Affordable Care Act could be in question. Republicans, of course, focused on her qualifications and saying what an excellent choice she was to be appointed to the highest court in the land. Yes, and it, it's it's particularly timely that you would mention the issue of health care because that is precisely what Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, were were really trying to portray this as. We actually have a, a soundbite from Senator Kamala Harris, of course, the Democrat from California, also the vice presidential nominee. She is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Take a listen to Senator Kamala Harris uh, in her opening remarks on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Here she is. I do believe this hearing is a clear attempt to jam through a Supreme Court nominee who will take health care away from millions of people during a deadly pandemic that has already killed more than 214,000 Americans. 
I believe we must listen to our constituents and protect their access to health care and wait to confirm a new Supreme Court justice until after Americans decide who they want in the White House. So in addition to health care and Edgerton Bloomberg politics editor, what are some other topics that might come up tomorrow in the question and answer portion of the hearings? Well, we're kind of in an interesting place because one of the reasons why President Trump has so much support from Dem- from Republicans, from conservatives especially, is because he said when he was running for election in 2016, if I am elected president, I will only pick justices that will overturn Roe v. Wade. So Roe v. Wade, of course, the landmark decision granting the right to abortion for women in this country. And that's a very important issue for conservatives to make sure that the Supreme Court has a conservative majority that can revisit this decision uh, in the next case that comes up. So it's really Republicans who initially made abortion a political issue. And then we see Democrats trying to bring other issues into that as well, like health care we mentioned before, but also the election. Because if we end up having a contested election on the night of November 3rd, if the Supreme Court is called to weigh in on that, Democrats are very nervous about what would happen if there is a 6-3 conservative majority already seated. Remarkable. And, and and even more so, of course, so you got the health care case in November, you got potential uh, Supreme Court elections cases, not to mention, uh, and I'm interested in this, just in terms of the workers' rights and union cases that could also uh, come up before the Supreme Court. And, um, and, you know, I was struck by this. You mentioned Roe v. Wade. Um, and and she was asked, or she didn't really, she wasn't asked yet, but she no doubt will be asked tomorrow. Uh, but in her opening statement, she said something that I want to read because I think it bears uh, repeating. Um, and actually, actually, let's play it because we have some time. Uh, she was asked after more than four hours of statements from the Judiciary Committee senators on both sides of the aisle, Judge Amy Coney Barrett made a remarkable, remarkable statement about her method for deciding cases. Take a listen, because this is this is probably as close of an answer as we're going to get on some of the issues that you're talking about, Anna. Here, here she is. I ask myself how I would view the decision if one of my children was the party that I was ruling against. Even though I would not like the result, would I understand that the decision was fairly reasoned and grounded in law? Anna Edgerton, in just 45 seconds, you know, what do you make of that? She's clearly speaking to all the people that Democrats highlighted in their opening statements. Democrats came prepared with posters of all their constituents that would be affected by removing the Affordable Care Act. So Amy Comey Barrett is trying to show her compassion for these people and show that she is a human being who would be seated on the court, bound by the law, not by any of her personal preferences. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. And just what will you quickly be looking for tomorrow? Who should we be watching? Senator Harris and, and Amy Coney Barrett, right? That'll be a key moment. Definitely those two, but also a Republican Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina and mm. Joni Ernst of Iowa are also facing tough reelection races, as well as the chairman, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. All right. Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg Politics Editor, thanks so much for your time. Meanwhile, Walt Disney is shaking up its management ranks and organizational structure to refocus the entertainment giant on its thriving Disney Plus streaming businesses. The company is merging some of its networks. Let's head to New York now, where Bloomberg's Caroline Hyde is joined by Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney. Well, I'm very pleased to say now we can speak to the seventh CEO in Disney's history. Bob Chapek is joining us now to discuss these Strategic changes, Bob, you say it's given the incredible success of Disney Plus, and incredible as is, 60 million subscribers in the first nine months. The creative engines are going to be focused on producing content. How? Talk to us how that's going to build on the success of Mandalorian, for example. Well, right now there is an assumption that content that is created by one of our particular creative engines uh, naturally gets ported or predestined to go on that very same distribution channel. Uh, But now what we're trying to do is build a sense of independence, uh, a group that's centralized, that can make the decision as to how we take each piece of content, regardless of where it's made in the company, and figure out the optimal strategy for distributing it and monetizing it in the marketplace. And of course, you're a man three decades at Disney. You've got experience in content and the importance of distribution. You were the president of distribution for the Walt Disney Studios. How do you want to see distribution change, Bob? 
Well, I think what we want to do is take a consumer-first approach. We really want the consumer to guide us on how they want to see content. Obviously, we've got the best content out there, the greatest franchises, the greatest executives steering the direction of our content, the greatest filmmakers. But the consumers need to tell us exactly how they want to enjoy our content. Is it at home? Is it in theaters? Is it on our platform of Disney Plus? And we're going to go ahead and take their cues. And right now, they're telling us that they really want to see more and more content on Disney Plus and Hulu. I mean, that's, of course, you're getting learnings from that. You've just released Mulan, went direct to consumer via Disney Plus. You've announced that Soul, a new... Uh, production that you're bringing out is also going to go that way, navigating away from theatres. What's your gut telling you in the longer term? Is this just what's going to happen in the pandemic and will more and more you be going straight to Disney Plus? Well, I think consumers will have their choices. Obviously, the pandemic has affected the speed with which we're looking at things. Uh, but I will tell you that this move that we made today would be happening with or without pandemic. Uh, we want consumers to have more choices. That we, we want them to steer the ship in terms of options. And uh, obviously, we have a lot of great relationships with uh, legacy distributors. Some of them are inside our own company. But at the same time, we're going to take our cues towards the future, looking at it with a sense of vision and continuing the road that we've been on towards a direct-to-consumer future for the Walt Disney Company. And talk to us about that legacy, the well-earned legacy of ESPN, of Hulu, of course, which you now control. Will we ever see those packages all put into one? Will Disney Plus eat them? Well, we're going to be talking a lot more about specific strategies that we're going to be employing in the future at our December 10th investor conference. And uh, so stay tuned for more specifics on how those things will play out. Oh, interesting. Wetting the appetite there. Of course, this has been, I'm sure, days, weeks, months in the making, Bob. But it was interesting that just last week we had Dan Loeb, an activist investor, basically calling you to focus more on content, saying, look, cut your dividend, invest that entirely into new content for Disney+, Plus. roll up together Hulu, ESPN+, Disney+, Plus into one. How much did you take that learning from Dan Loeb? How much did you already, ha have you got a sort of amount in your mind as to how much is going to be going on the making of content? Well, as you suggested, this has been in the works for many, many months as we've seen the trend and the receptivity uh, and the acceptance of Disney Plus as a, a first choice for consumers. Uh, and as it you know, pertains to our investors, we really like to hear from our investors and hear what they're thinking and appreciate uh, uh, any thesis that they want to forward. At the same time, we've got to do what we believe is right for our business. And in this particular case, we agree that direct-to-consumer is a huge opportunity for the Walt Disney Company. And uh, But to do that, we're going to have to make huge in increases in our investment in our content. Um, and we're ready, willing, and prepared to do that. But I'm not going to comment on any decision-making that our board will do in terms of a dividend going forward. Bob, what about the amount that you'll spend? Netflix spends about $15 billion a year on content. Are you looking in that order of magnitude? Well, again, I'm not going to comment on any specific number, but what I will say is that we will have something new virtually every week. Uh, on our platforms uh, across all of our all of our franchises, you know, between Pixar, Disney, Marvel, Lucas. I mean, we've got some really great content and our guests love it. And there's so much story to be told, so many avenues to do it in. And that that's where really where we're focusing is how do we go ahead and really take those content creation centers that we have inside the company, those franchises, if you will, and catalyze them to make the content that we need across all of our distribution channels, but especially our direct-to-consumer channels. I mean, Bob, full disclosure, me, myself, my son, complete addicts of Disney+. Plus. So music to our ears that there's more that's going to be coming our way. But how hard is that to do in an era of a pandemic? How difficult is it to produce content at the moment? Well, we're focused on the North Star, and the North Star is really pleasing our guests and maximizing our wealth for our shareholders. So there's certainly a lot of distractions, and some of them are very real uh, uh, in terms of you know some of the financial challenges that we've got with our uh, parks, either with limited opening or closed or, or even our cruise ships. But when we're looking out towards our future and where we want to be, uh, we're not letting anything that's happening in the short to medium term uh, get us off track. As a matter of fact, I think what this says is that we're going faster, bigger, stronger along the same route that was set up six months ago, a year ago, year and a half ago. This is the direction of the Walt Disney Company.
I have to say, of course, you were previously chairman of Disney Parks Experiences Products. That must have hurt a lot to have to announce the 28,000 job cuts announced last month, a quarter of U.S. theme park workforce. Talk to us how difficult it is to make such decisions at the moment and how optimistic you are about hopefully returning to growth. Well, you know, our cast members are the center of the magic at our parks. Every single cast guest interaction is an opportunity for us to make magic. So for us to have to make a decision like we did is particularly painful. But we're looking forward to a more optimistic future, uh, one where we can welcome our guests uh, beyond you know, a, a particular limit every day in the park to keep that six-foot social distancing and uh, open up our our uh, cruise ships and reopen Disneyland hopefully someday and uh, really move forward uh, with our business so that we can employ as many cast members as possible and bring the magic back to our guests and uh, that's what we're all about. Are you in liaising with government officials about the hopes in that respect? Well, we're trying to. We're trying to make sure that government officials take into account the success that we've had around the world in Shanghai, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Paris, Walt Disney World, and look at the experience that we've had. We've been open for months and months and months, and we've not had any issues. Uh, I think that's worth something. If you look at what we did with the NBA bubble, I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, so that should be taken into account uh, as opposed to maybe just looking at an arbitrary cutoff point of, you know, what uh, uh, advice that they're getting. I will tell you that we, of course, consulted with health officials on the reopening uh, levels uh, of people in our park in terms of the requirements to wear masks, temperature checks, et cetera, social distancing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to be working. We've got labs across the world that are saying this is absolutely working and we would just wish that uh, the state of California would look at our history uh, as opposed to, you know, saying some arbitrary standard that, frankly, um, you know, is precluding people from going back to work. And what about as a leader of an enormous business needing financial help, for, particularly for those perhaps you've now sadly have to may come unemployed, as hard as that must be. How much are you hoping that government can produce some more fiscal stimulus, some more money to support business and the growth in the economy? Well, what we're hoping is that we can first get people back to work, because the sooner we get back to work, then it lessens the burden on the individual government entities to try to provide some type of safety net. So the best thing they can do is let us do what we do, and that's make magic. Will we see more layoffs, Bob? Uh, we certainly hope not, uh, but uh, we're really keeping a close eye on what uh, the governor does in the state of California. And right now we're still retaining a whole bunch of cast members on furlough with the hope that someday soon we'll get some realistic guidelines about how we can open. Uh, until then, I can't rule it out. Bob Chapek, wonderful to have some time with you. Thank you for talking to us about the reorganization, the focus on content. And of course, we all look forward to the the next round of Mandalorian, I think, that's coming up later this month. We thank you for your time, the CEO of Sir. Disney there. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You were listening to my colleague Caroline Hyde uh, speaking across platform on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, interviewing Bob Chapek, who is, of course, the CEO of Disney. And coming up later on in this program, uh, you will hear from my interview with Nikki Fried, who is one of the uh, top commissioners of Florida tourism and the impact that uh, Disney's layoffs have had uh, in the state of Florida. Joining us now, Yelena Schultzayev. Yelena Shalyetseva, sorry, Yelena, Yelena Shalyetseva, who is a Bloomberg senior economist. You know, we just heard there a pretty grim picture in terms of potentially more layoffs uh, from Disney. You know, you hear that interview, uh, and even so, the stocks jumped as NASDAQ notched its best day since April. What was driving the positive market movement today, Yelena? 
Hi, Kevin. So uh, today's, uh, you know, uh, movements in the market don't seem to be related to the fundamentals. Uh, they are driven by uh, certain uh, tech stocks, and among them is Amazon. Uh, and that could be uh, because of the uh, prime day, which is approaching uh, really fast. And uh, what's interesting is... Uh, uh, I was listening to the interview. It was an amazing interview, uh, I should admit, and um, it really highlights what is happening in the economy. Uh, there's a significant dichotomy between the services sector and the goods sector in the economy, and uh, more, of, more of that is reflected in uh, consumer spending uh, on goods versus services. So we still did not get back to pre-pandemic levels in terms of services spending, and that includes uh, the parks uh, and all all other, you know, vacations and things like that. So we are way uh, back, uh, you know, like uh, before we, we it's going to take time before we, we can get there. And uh, really, whether it's uh, precautions, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, mandatory closing or people simply do not feel like going on vacation, that is uh, not going to uh, help services spending, right. whereas goods are back to the pre-pandemic levels. I thought it was interesting that Bob Chapek, CEO of Disney, telling Bloomberg's Caroline Hyde just moments ago, uh, pointing to, to international openings, pointing to the bubble with the NBA as examples of, of the company being able to navigate through uh, the the pandemic and 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 using and citing those instances uh, in in parts around the world uh, as as examples of, of success stories, even though they have had to unfortunately lay off and furlough uh, thousands of workers. You know, I he didn't he alluded to this, but the the sentiment was strong through through Caroline's excellent questioning, which was he wants guidance from Washington, he wants stimulus and certainty coming from Congress. Am I, am I right, Yelena? I mean, he wants he wants stimulus and guidance coming from Washington D.C. Right? Don't we all? Right? So, and we're not getting it uh, at least until after the election. I, I am afraid. I think you know it's just with less than a month before the election, the probability of a comprehensive deal remains really minimal. It appears uh, conditions will need to get worse before they get better. So. In our view at Bloomberg Economics, we don't think that neither Democrats or Republicans uh, have the upper hand in, in terms of negotiations. It's the markets and the economic data that could tip the scales. So uh, if the history is any guide, that's what was happening back in 2008 when uh, House Republicans blocked the financial rescue plan and only like a few days later, uh, financial markets completely roiled, and that actually helped the situation. And uh, you know, the the uh, the rescue package was signed into the law, right. and uh, the current situation is slightly different. But here is this is kind of the right. uh, what needs to happen. I'm afraid uh, before uh, we get any clarity. Yelena Shayetseva, thank you so much for joining us. Never enough time with you, my friend. Yelena Bloomberg, senior U.S. economist. Coming up, much more politics policy and campaign trail. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Judge Amy Coney Barrett heads to Capitol Hill, the latest before the Senate Judiciary Committee, plus... President Trump heads back on the campaign trail. He said it's a four states, four states this week alone, the latest on the 2020 race and an exclusive interview that my colleague Taylor Riggs and I did with Nikki Freed, tourism commissioner down in the Sunshine State of Florida. Lots to get through. Rainy day here in Washington, but come on, we got a whole week ahead of us. Let's 
go. Ready? Let's do it. All right. Judge Amy Coney Barrett testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee today, and that's the big story. She faced, she will face questions, rather, tomorrow in the question and answer portion of this. But really, there were four hours of opening statements from the various members of the Judiciary Committee, chaired, of course, by Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, who was in a tough, tough re-election battle uh, on November 3rd in the Palmetto State. Meanwhile, there's some star power, some star power on this hearing, uh, on this committee rather, and that includes vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris, the Democrat from California. But I want to begin with what Judge Amy Coney Barrett said in her opening remarks. And well, take a listen. Here she is. Courts have a vital responsibility to the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches, elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. No doubt there are political ramifications for this week's committee hearings that Judge Amy Coney Barrett faces before the Senate Judiciary Committee, but also without question, there are short term, short term implications should she ultimately, as is expected, be confirmed to the Supreme Court. Case in point, well, the Affordable Care Act, that is going to be up uh, for a, a monumental case about the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And it has drawn criticism from Democrats, especially, especially this close uh, to an election. Take a listen to Senator Kamala Harris. I do believe this hearing is a clear attempt to jam through a Supreme Court nominee who will take health care away from millions of people during a deadly pandemic that has already killed more than 214,000 Americans. I believe we must listen to our constituents and protect their access to health care and wait to confirm a new Supreme Court justice until after Americans decide who they want in the White House. That was Democratic vice presidential nominee Senator Kamala Harris speaking before the Senate Judiciary Committee in her opening remarks. William McGinley is a principal at the Vogel Group. He is a former White House cabinet secretary and former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. Scott Bolden also is with me for the hour, Democratic strategist. He is the former D.C. Democratic Party chairman and attorney. Scott, health care, no doubt how Democrats are going to be questioning uh, ACB. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And, and the Democrats know there's no maneuver to stop this nomination, nor do they really want a bloody nomination because, um, uh, the, the, the nominee, uh, doesn't have the same baggage that Kavanaugh did. That's one thing. The other thing is though, because she's going to make it to the Supreme Court and the Affordable Health Care Act is on the table, you're going to hear the Dems, as you heard today, talking a lot about preservation of, of the Affordable Care Act, how it's affected 20 or 30 million people, pre-existing conditions, and how Donald Trump wants to take it away from them. They're going to make it somewhat of a, of a Democratic campaign convention, if you will, because they can't stop the nomination. It's smart politics on their part. William, come in here. Uh, Bill McGinley with us, principal at the Vogel Group. I mean, you know, you hear what what will Republicans be focusing on during this week's hearings? Look, I think they're going to be focusing on uh, Amy Coney Barrett's uh, qualifications, Um, her exemplary academic record, her record on the bench in the Seventh Circuit. um, And I think why she is qualified to uh, to become a justice on the Supreme Court. I think today's hearing was nothing but a preview for the question and answers that we're going to see over the next couple of days. Um, where my colleague said that the Democrats are going to focus on health care. But I also think they're going to lean in a little bit um, on Mrs. Barrett um, to try and get her to, to stumble. But I think in the same respect, the Republicans are going to lean in on the Democratic line of questioning uh, because it's not going to go to the ultimate question of qualifications. It's going to be more about the campaign issues, um, and they're going to try and goat them into some of the uh, – the, the religious test questions that have happened in, with prior uh, judicial nominees uh, during the Trump term. And we should know. Mm, uh, let's stay away from that. <laughs> 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 
I agree. I'd stay away from, stay away from that. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see whether the Dems lean in instead on whether she will recuse herself yeah. if the November 3rd elections uh, go to the Supreme Court eventually. I think that's what they'd lean in on. I can tell this is going to be yeah. a great hour. I've never had you both on together, but uh, two of the best, and, and already I can tell you guys are, you guys are bouncing off. I love it. I love it. Making my job easy on a Monday, on a rainy Monday. I was really struck by this because it, to, to both of your, your points, she, she did. there was one statement in her opening remarks that really jumped out at me, uh, especially with how she's going to, to no doubt uh, – answer some of the questions, whether it's on Roe v. Wade, whether it's on the election, whether it's on uh, a host of other uh, different uh, subjects that are going to come up. Because yes, I mean, it's typical for these nominees to not try to be pinned down or to play the hypotheticals. But take a listen to what she said about how, how uh, she would she would look uh, at, at these various cases on her deciding method. Here, here it is. I ask myself, how I would view the decision if one of my children was the party that I was ruling against. Even though I would not like the result, would I understand that the decision was fairly reasoned and grounded in law? That was a remarkable, remarkable statement. And, and really, in many ways, I think, humanized her opening remarks, uh, Bill. I think she's got a very compelling story to tell, both professionally and personally. Yeah. I mean, as she said, she's comfortable with uh, being a group of nine uh, because she and her husband have seven children, two of whom are adopted uh, from from (laughs) Haiti. I think that when she looks at um, the parties before her as she's ruling from the bench, um, she's trying to figure out how do I explain the basis in law? Uh, for the reason why I ruled the way I did. And I think that that is a, a, it should be a compliment for her because what she's doing is she's giving a good record in case this goes up on appeal to adequately explain how she reached the conclusion she did. I, I think th- this all goes to judicial uh, qualifications. It goes to judicial temperament. Um, and it goes to an approach uh, that preserves the rule of law that she's going to call balls and strikes and not try and legislate from the bench. She's a very, very competent, qualified candidate, and I think we know why she's probably going to be confirmed before the election, unless well, something unexpected happens. Well, I appreciate the baseball metaphor and not a football one, especially <laughs> after that horrific loss. Did you see the Eagles yesterday, Washington? Did you see my birds absolutely miss a field goal? I was screaming. I, I was. It was more painful than than. Uh, see, I'm going to be careful. It was more painful than some of the. Never mind. But anyway, I'm not going to say it. See, Christine Barada, our executive producer, I have restraint and discipline. Coming up next, we have back out on the campaign trail as President Trump is set to go return to the campaign trail. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Scott and Bill, stick around. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Radio. I have no idea what song that is. I exchanged addiction. Our producers are telling us now they are saying that I'm showing my young age. Mm. Okay. Welcome back. Uh, Joining me for the hour, I'm grateful, Scott Bolden, Democratic strategist, former D.C. Democratic Party chairman and attorney, and Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group, former White House cabinet secretary and former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. Hey, Bill, uh, President Trump's headed back out on the campaign trail. He's going to head to Florida tomorrow, Pennsylvania, Iowa, and then uh, North Carolina. Wow. Remarkable. I mean, he's really doing this. Is uh, this a smart move? He's, he really doesn't have a choice, right? I mean, I, I mean, no, I know I shouldn't have said that, but because I guess you could. But I, I mean, from his perspective, he he doesn't have a choice. Yeah, politically, he needs to get back out there. Um, obviously, it needs to be done safe. He needs to follow the doctor's orders. He needs to be thinking about the health of the people who staff him um, around there. But if the doctors have said he's not contagious and he's you know, virus free, um, then he should be out there uh, taking his case to the people. 
look, I mean, the polls are showing that, you know, he's probably behind right now. The way that he's going to crawl back in the remaining three weeks is if he gets out and makes his case directly to the voters. And well, I think these types of rallies not only well, have a chance to allow him to make that case, but it also energizes him. So, Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, but, you know, the challenge is we don't know whether he's healthy enough. He didn't really care much about the 26 or 30 people around him before he got sick. In fact, he called it a hoax and said they were turning the corner and just told several mistruths to the public. So he's not exactly a reliable source on whether it's healthy or safe. Now, obviously, if he's been cleared by the doctors and he wears a mask and he requires those folks at the, at the rally to wear a mask and all the protocols are taken, but Donald Trump and his team have never done that. And so from a, from a credibility standpoint, it's just an open question, whether you're in the press corps, whether you work in the White House. I mean, the White House right now is a hotbed for COVID, or at least it was, and the president himself was a super spreader. So I agree he's got to get back out there. He should do it safely because the numbers are just atrocious for him. And Biden's campaign has more money than him. And so they're running neck and neck in states like Georgia. Georgia, which are turning into swing states or purple states when they need to be spending money elsewhere in the Northwest as well as the, in the, um, I'm sorry, the uh, Midwest as well as the uh, Southwest. And they're having to compete in states they didn't think they had to. So uh, he's got 20 days to turn it around, but it's unlikely that's going to happen at well, least in, effectively or efficiently. Let me jump in here. The New York Times Siena poll out today for Pennsylvania as well as Florida has the president trailing significantly in some cases as much as 10 percentage points. Uh, in the battleground states, you know, in many ways, Bill, I don't even think they're trying to convince swing voters to, to, to come back. It's more amplifying and running up the margins in Republican districts, Bill. No. Well, look, I mean, that's how you win states, right? I mean, you win states by running up the totals in the, in the districts or congressional districts, um, that's your favor to win and that favor you. Um, or you try to lose by a lower margin in those states that are, or in those districts that are opposed to you. Um, that's all fine. The one thing that I would say is, is that there are some eerie, um, similarities to 2016. Uh, the president was badly outspent in 2016, yet he was still able to come from behind and win. Um, we've had numerous October surprises this time, like we did last time. Um, I agree with the analysis that Joe Biden is more likable than Hillary Clinton was in 2016, and that can play a role. <laughs> but anybody anybody who says they know what's going to happen in this election, I don't believe them. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen. And I think that Boy. the president getting back out there um, in a safe manner, as my colleague said, um, is a good idea for his campaign because he's the only one. He's his own comms director. And he's going to make the best case for his reelection yeah. to the people who need to hear the case. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with my colleague. Let me tell you what's different, though. What's different in 2020 is that Donald Trump has always needed a boogeyman in his politics. And he's tried to make Biden the boogeyman and his son. That hasn't stuck. And then COVID is hanging around his neck like a lead weight. He's losing the elderly. And, and the problem is he's never hit 50% in approval rating. So the more he focuses on his base, his base is going to vote for him whether he shoots somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue in New York or not. And so the reality is, how, do I, how, does, how does Trump as a politician grow beyond that? He's going to Republican districts and trying to find new voters who perhaps have never voted before but, but share his political philosophy and get them and mobilize them to the polls. And the question is, will that be enough? The Democrats are highly energized. Independents are highly energized. And you've got this COVID piece that's affecting 215,000 deaths. And you've got a business and an employment rate that COVID is killing. And they're blaming this president for not doing enough let alone uh, what he's done, how he's not protected himself. And so he's got a lot of mountains to climb to get back in this race, I Scott think. Bolden, Scott Bolden's with reality. us. He's a Democratic strategist, former D.C. Democratic Party chairman and attorney, William McGinley, Bill McGinley, uh, principal at the Vogel Group and former uh, deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. Both of you obviously have a legal background. Uh, uh, Scott, in terms of the legal fight that could be around the corner, what do you think uh, the Biden campaign should be doing in order to prepare 
for a potential legal legal fight after the election? Well, well the preparation starts now. I think uh, the Biden campaign with several other organizations, such as the NACP Legal Defense Fund, the Lawyers Committee on Civil, Civil Rights, are in court right now trying to allow to get rid of rules that uh, suppress the vote and allow as many people to vote as possible. They'll certainly have poll watching done legally, if you will, and appropriately. And then the strategy is we won't know the winner, most likely, mm-hmm. unless it's a landslide on November 3rd. But, but they each has prepared briefs already in whichever states we, they think are going to be close. And the briefings are going to be to combat the Republican briefs that are going to probably go to court if this goes, if the election goes the way it should go. Ultimately, if it goes to the Supreme Court, be on the lookout for a big fight as to whether Judge Barrett, who will be confirmed by then, uh, whether right. she has, whether she recuses herself or not. Okay. But those, the brief writing and the skeletal outlines are being done already only because of Donald Trump's statements. He's not going to, he may, okay. he may or may not accept the results okay. of the election and so yeah. forth and so on. Okay. Breaking news, red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. President Trump has tested negative for COVID-19. A new uh, statement out from the White House physician, Sean Conley. Uh, he writes in a one page letter, I can share with you that he has tested negative on consecutive days. I'm Kevin Cirilli. More next, you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. White House physician Sean Conley releasing a one-page statement via tweet from the White House. He writes, quote, in response to your inquiry regarding the president's most recent recent COVID-19 tests, I can share with you that he has tested negative on consecutive days using the Abbott Binax Now antigen card. It is important to note that this test was not used in isolation for the determination of the president's current negative status. Repeatedly negative antigen tests taken in context with additional clinical and laboratory data, including viral load as well as other uh, things, uh, uh, all indicate a lack of detectable viral replication. This comprehensive data, in concert with the CDC's guidelines for removal of transmission-based precautions, have informed our medical team's assessment that the president is not infectious to others. This, in a statement from White House physician Sean Connolly, So assistant to the president and White House press secretary, Kelly McEnany, that in a statement that just just came out. All right. Switching gears now. Last hour, my colleague Caroline Hyde uh, interviewed Bob Chapek, who is the Disney CEO. Uh, And in that interview, the Walt Disney Company announced that they are shaking up management ranks and organizational structure to refocus the entertainment giant on its thriving Disney Plus streaming businesses. The company is merging its TV networks, film studio, and direct-to-consumer divisions into one big group that it is calling media and distribution. Disney CEO Bob Chapek talked about that restructuring, but it was another part of the interview that really stood out to me, and that was when he really called on some more guidance, some more guidance from Washington, from policymakers, from lawmakers, to provide some guidance to CEOs about what's coming, what's around the corner. Of course, Disney had to make the unfortunate decision to furlough and lay off thousands of workers from their parks. Earlier today, with my colleague Taylor Riggs on Bloomberg Balance of Power, I spoke with Nikki Fried. She is the agriculture commissioner of Florida. She's a Democrat, and she also oversees some of the um, tourism portfolio as well. I asked her um, just about everything going on in Florida. Take a listen to what she told me. President Trump back on the campaign trail. From an economic standpoint, what impact has the COVID-19 pandemic had on your state in particular? It's been disastrous. Uh, we, we know that the president not only downplayed the pandemic, uh, had no plan to get us through it. And we all know that because of the cases and, and the, the amount of deaths and, and how across the entire country and here in the state of Florida, uh, we can't have an economic rebound. You know, Tourism here in the state of Florida is our number one economic driver. Agriculture is number two. 
We are a one trillion economic driver for the country. Uh, we are the hot, one of the highest GP, uh, GDPs in the entire nation. And most of that is in tourism. So until which time that we can actually beat COVID, tourists aren't going to come back here to the state of Florida. We know we're, we're you know, with between our theme parks and, and SeaWorld, where you all guys are today, uh, as well as Universal Studios and Disney, uh, we saw even last week Disney took more 9,000 people that they laid off. A lot of our small businesses and a lot of our hotels and restaurants had furloughed a lot of people during the original outbreak. Um, but unfortunately, those furloughs are turning into permanent losses. We have 1.6 million people here in the state of Florida uh, that are currently unemployed. And there has been no plan, neither from the president or from our governor, uh, to actually get our economy rebounding. Uh, and that's because there's no plan to get COVID under control and to make sure that we beat COVID here in the state. Commissioner, what do you need from Capitol Hill? Because they're having these round-the-clock negotiations, supposedly, about fiscal stimulus. You mentioned tourism specifically. Uh, They're talking about tourism. What do you need for Republicans and Democrats to pass on fiscal stimulus? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, I also oversee the school nutrition program. Uh, so we need to make sure that the USDA <clears throat> is continuing uh, paying for uh, a lot of the programs that were already uh, you know, stood up during the, the first part of this pandemic. Uh, we also need to make sure that we are getting the food into our, into our homes. That means having stimulus dollars uh, for the food banks, but really more importantly, into our small businesses. We know that a significant chunk of the money that was allocated during the first few stimuluses went to the top one percenters, went to the top corporations, went back into the stock market. And we know that that is, not, that is not even close to a snapshot of what is happening in our American homes and homes across the state of Florida. Our small businesses, our small farmers are continuing to struggle. So the money needs to go right into the heart of the people that are suffering. And those are the individuals to help stimulate the economy, to make sure that our small businesses have exactly what they need to keep their doors open, the restaurants, the hotels, which again are starting to actually lay off employees, not just furlough. So the money needs to go to those small business and, and to reinvigorate the middle class here in the state of Florida and not put it into back into the stock market or into the top 1% corporations. You know, certainly we hope that the corporations would again uh, expand their hiring process, but unfortunately we know what they're doing. They then take out their, their dividend and re- and recap all of their profits. So that way that they are the ones who are gaining um, the system and that money is not going down to, to the hardworking Floridians um, and to the people across our entire country. So that's where the money needs to go what into our small farmers, our small businesses. You, well, you mentioned small farmers. What changes do you want to see in the trade war to boost your agricultural mm-hmm. business? Well, I have been a strong um, opponent to uh, USMCA, which was the old NAFTA deal, because what happened is that we traded uh, the the better interests of our Florida farmers and our southeast farmers for the auto industry. And of course, there's a happy balance. But what has happened here in the state of Florida since NAFTA was first signed is that we have seen a significant over 200 to 400 percent increase in the amount of Mexican products that are coming here into the state of Florida and throughout the southeast, Uh, which means that our small farmers here that are trying to make ends meet, trying to feed not just their communities, the state, but the world, quite honestly, are, are having to compete with Mexican growers uh, who are having who are paying 25 cents a day for their farm labor, which we know here in America is unacceptable. Uh, so making sure that we have actual uh, plans in place to equal that playing field, our farmers here are some of the hardest workers in the entire world. Uh, so creating a level playing field is all that we're asking for, uh, making sure that people across the entire country are actually buying domestic products, demanding that, uh, the, as we all know, the, the power mm-hmm. is in the purse strings. And so if our, if our Americans are demanding domestic products, uh, that will put a, a huge ripple effect uh, into some of the trade issues that are happening across the entire mm. country, and especially with USMCA. Commissioner Freed, Florida, swing state, final countdown, three weeks to go. I mean, the polls are tightening. What do you, how, how important is it going to be for Democrats to win Florida? How, how can they win it back uh, from, from 2016? Yeah, we all know that the only way that Trump uh, can actually win is by winning Florida, uh, which is why he is uh, putting uh, his his first rally here in the state of Florida. His reckless behavior is just a a clear example of his lack of leadership on COVID uh, to have a rally here in the state of Florida. Uh, But I know that the people of the state, as I've traveled uh, throughout the entire state, uh, especially in the last few months, talking to a lot of our down ballot candidates, uh, we've got the most diverse candidates across the state that we've ever had, uh, filling every single seat across the entire state. And the message is very clear. 
Uh, we have an individual who we have an opportunity to elect, and that is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as a ticket. Uh, somebody who is going to roll up his sleeves, has a plan in place for our economic recovery, uh, getting COVID under control, making sure that we are actually uh, respected again across the entire world. We have lost that, that prestige in, in the international community. And, and so I know here in the state of Florida, we as Democrats are not just taking our message to Democrats. Uh, we're yeah. taking our message to NPAs, independents, and to moderate Republicans who understand that the Republican Party of today is not the party that they joined. Uh, today's Republican Party is that of Donald Trump, which creates mm -hmm. divisive politics, divisive social issues. That was my interview with Nikki Fried. She is the Agriculture Commissioner uh, in the Sunshine State of Florida. Of course, she's also rumored to be a potential gubernatorial candidate or Senate candidate. She's a rising star in Democratic politics in sunny Florida, in Florida. All right, coming up next, what's on the panel's radar? We're going to dive into that. And again, breaking news, red headline crossing the Bloomberg Terminal. The president, according to White House physician, Sean Connolly does not have COVID-19 anymore. He's tested negative for COVID-19 uh, and cannot transmit it. This, of course, is President Trump is set to go out on the campaign trail in a bevy of states, Florida, including one of them. He'll be in Florida tomorrow. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. What are you grateful for today? Joining us on the line for, tell me what they're grateful for. Why don't we do that? It's my show, right? I can do what I want, kind of. Scott Bolden, Democratic mm -hmm. strategist, former D.C. Democratic Party chairman and attorney. Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group, former White House <laughs> cabinet secretary and former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. Bill, what are you grateful for, buddy? Uh, the Dodgers are playing game one of the National League Championship Series tonight, taking on the Atlanta Braves. Okay. Um, wow. And there's the potential that they could actually play the Houston Astros, who they faced in 2017, uh, that got popped for the cheating scandal. Uh, it would be a great rematch. Scott, what are you grateful for? Uh, I, I can't beat that one. Uh, I'm grateful for the Lakers and the fact uh, that the legacy of Kobe Bryant was ever present on the court. Oh, yesterday. I like Kobe. He's from Delco. And Right. And, you know, it's just a great story, even though and the Heat is a great story, too. They fought very hard. And so uh, I'm grateful that they won. I could have told you I'm grateful for my dad's health, who's a retired judge at 86 years old. Oh, I but I that. keep him in my prayers all the time. But I'm certainly grateful for his health and how he's holding on uh, doing some health challenges. That's OK. I'm going to say like that. for him as well. That's a good one. I'm thankful for cheesesteaks. What? Cheese steaks. Cheese steaks. I don't want to get too deep, right? I don't want to get too personal. You know? I'm just an average person. What do you mean cheese steaks? You should have a cheese steak and watch the Dodgers tonight. No, I should I should have a cheese steak and well you can't get a good cheese steak in this town. You know what I'm saying? You need like a I gotta go back home. Maybe I should go back to Philadelphia. Um okay. The time now for my favorite part of the show, which is what is on. I'm actually really thankful for my father who keeps me in mm -hmm. check. Um, okay. What are we going to do? It's called what is on your radar. This is where you tell me one thing that is on your radar. I've got mine. I've had it all day in my show prep. Scott, what is on your radar? If you had $57 million and had to spend it in 20 days, could you do it? Could yes. Could you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm being really chatty. Christine's cringing. I could spend it. Let me tell you, I'd buy a lot of cheesesteaks and then right, I would right. buy a house and a car. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I could totally. I win this Jamie, game all the time. If you won the lottery, trust Jamie me, Harris. I have a whole list. 
I take care of my mom. Go ahead, Scott. Of the Graham. He's got $57 million in the bank. Graham's been begging for money on Fox News, and he's got to spend it because he doesn't want to have it after November 3rd. He's got 20 days to do it. And if he can't beat Graham in a tie race with $57 million, then he's just not beatable, despite his hypocrisy and flip-flopping and lack of telling the truth about about COVID and all the other stuff that goes with uh, Trump. But can he spend that $57 million and can he win? We ought to keep that on the radar. Isn't it crazy when you actually think about how much money the Republicans and Democrats are fighting over for fiscal stimulus and then the gall and the gumption that they have to just put their hand out to take money from donors to it's spend a on, amount of on, money. on political ad- and both parties, mind you, on, on those right, text messages right. that I just get all the time. And uh, first of all, they don't even have my name right. And I'm sitting there and you're like, how much money? They can't even... It's insane, but that's a really good one, Scott, when you when you actually think about it. Bill, what's on your radar? Mm-hmm. So um, with all of the talk about the stimulus aid package and the negotiations going on, uh, people are beginning to forget that government funding runs out in December. Yes, smart. And that we could have uh, a potential lame duck session, um, not mm-hmm. only dealing with stimulus and government funding, but if we end up in a very tight presidential election, um, then all of the electoral college timeframes and potential contingent elections come into play, and we could have one heck of a mess up on Capitol Hill as they fight everything out, uh, trying to preserve the uh, economy, trying to fight the virus, and also trying to determine who actually won the election. This lame duck session is really uh, <laughs> shaping up to be anything but lame, right? I mean, you actually think right. of how the markets have recalibrated in recent weeks, and, and they're not seeing as much election risk, especially now that the Biden has extended his lead in the polls. But I still think there's a ton of volatility and unknowns, especially uh, uh, given the dynamics of, of the Supreme Court cases. Uh, and of course, as you just pointed out, a government shutdown, which of course has severe, severe implications in, in a city like like Washington, D.C., uh, where so many people uh, and government employees have already been thrown into the to the fire with uncertainty yeah. surrounding you know what what this is which is an industry town okay let's go geopolitical for a second this is what's on my radar Um, i saw this on the bloomberg terminal earlier today quote in a quiet experiment of just two weeks china provided millions of people access to long forbidden foreign websites like youtube and instagram the trial appears to signal the communist government is moving toward giving the country's citizens greater access to the global internet while still attempting to control who sees what the tuber browser app which is backed by the government linked 360 security technology inc appeared without fanfare late september and offered for the first time in years a way to view long banned websites from Facebook to Google and get this the New York Times albeit sanitized version so sanitize what does that mean i mean i guess they blocked things out chinese users rejoiced in a newfound ability to directly pursue long blocked content from a mobile browser without an illegal virtual private network or vpn it really is remarkable scott uh, when you when you think of just how the united states has had to bend over backward in order to try to get access to china but meanwhile, they right. just come over here and they're, you know, TikTok and whatever else and, and do whatever they want. Yeah, it, and obviously it's a, doc, it's a great uh, line of demarcation between our democracy and China's communist state. And yet they seem they want to have it both ways. They want, they, <laughs> they want access to our market and on the Internet, but then they certainly limit our access to them, including shaking down many of our top companies and taking an ownership interest in some of our companies just to operate, let alone, for example, for a law firm to operate there. It's really, really interesting. And wow. The one thing that Trump did not do is really get to the bottom of addressing that very issue in the China trade wars. Come in here, Bill. We've got like a minute left. Go ahead. But take your time. Take your time. We have more did, than a minute. Did the, yeah. Did the... Uh, my question is, did the article address whether the uh, Chinese uh, citizens who access the foreign websites, is that going to factor into their social scoring? Wow. Remember, China did the yeah, whole yeah. social scoring, and that impacts your ability where you live, where, how you can travel, what you can do. And are they just temporarily taking it down to see who's interested in Western uh, thought? Uh, well, and, and there's no—I don't understand. 
it could be I don't trap. understand yeah. how they can say that there you can allow access to the New York Times, but a sanitized version. I don't know what a sanitized version is. I mean, there's only there's free speech and there's everything else. You either you either have free speech or you don't. You know, I mean, I, I guess I guess I'm from Delco, so I guess it's just a little simple. Yeah, but well, you know. look at the NBA and the the issues oh. that they had with China. Right. I know. Right. Um, right. Right. It's you know it, a lot of a lot of American companies and a number of you know some people like the NBA. You know, are we going to stand tall on principles of free speech and freedom, um, or are we just going to kowtow to what the CCP says in order to gain access to their markets? I mean, it really is kind of a foundational issue. Look at uh, me, for how Scott. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with that, Scott? Yeah, it, it certainly is the tension. I got them there. to agree. And, Scott yeah. Bolden, we got to leave it there. Scott Bolden, Democratic strategist, <laughs> former D.C. Democratic Party chairman and attorney. Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group, and, of course, the former deputy counsel of the Republican National Committee. I got them to agree. See, look at me bringing people together. I'm Kevin Cirilli. When I was a kid, my dad would have me stand over the stove. He would have chip steak from Acme, which I guess is like a, a not a D.C. DMV trend. And I would chop it up, and I would make my own cheesesteaks. I can make my own cheesesteaks. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.